0: Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Today we're talking about the Batman. Uh, I recently got the chance to sit down in Los Angeles in person with the creative team behind this film to discuss the, the truly extraordinary sound and image work that is going into this film, which I think is going to be one of the biggest movies of the year. So we discussed the movie in quite a bit of detail. And if you haven't had a chance to see it yet, I'm going to suggest that you hit pause and go to a theater and watch this movie on the big screen. And if you have uh, one nearby you, I really suggest that you Buy a ticket and see it at a Dolby Cinema. Uh, This movie is just a spectacular presentation in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos, both of which we talk about in the next two episodes when we're going to be focusing on the Batman. So as I said, I was lucky enough to catch a preview screening before sitting down with the creative team today to talk about the conversation and I uh, was totally blown away by the movie. So today is part one of a special two-part. Uh, conversation on the Batman, and I'm thrilled to be able to discuss the ambitious and huge scale work uh, today with the amazing team of artists who worked on the sound and music for the film. So I'm joined by director and co-writer Matt Reeves in conversation with his longtime collaborators, composer Michael Giacchino, supervising sound editor Douglas Murray, uh, co-supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer Will Files, and re-recording mixer Andy Nelson. Uh, And uh, for those of you who have paid attention, this is a creative team that's been working together for a long time, all the way back to Cloverfield. many years ago. So it's a a team that has a great working relationship, great collaboration, and as you can tell from this conversation, they have a lot to say to each other. This was a really fun, vibrant discussion and uh, they were all so eager to get back together and talk about the film. that I I will say we went a little long in this conversation. We we discussed it in quite a bit of depth. It was a really fun spirited conversation. So uh, it was just a fascinating glimpse into the making of the film and how this team collaborated. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. So let's just jump right in. I started by asking Matt Reeves, the co-writer and director of the film, what drew him to the Batman and what made him want to spend what ended up being about five years of his life in this universe working on this film.
1: I loved Batman since I was a kid. I mean, Batman 66 was sort of my Batman. That's when I was born and I loved Adam West. And I had always loved the character and loved the movies. You know, I just thought that they were... um, they were like the best comic book films, right? I just, I just love those movies. And, you know, it's interesting because we were finishing War for the Planet of the Apes, actually this group. Um, and actually, I, would, I shouldn't even use the word finishing. I was like deep in the middle of post. There was so much. We hadn't even begun the mix yet. I was still finishing the edit and we were doing a lot of stuff with Weta and doing all of that. And so I kept getting this phone call. From Warner Brothers saying they really want to have a general meeting with you. And I was like, Yeah, I understand, but I, I'm in the middle of doing this Apes thing, and you have no idea because you, you make the movie again in Apes. You end up working with the animators to make sure that Caesar does what Andy Serkis did, what Kobe Kebble did. So I'll, I kept turning them down. And then my agent called me because, you know, that general meeting, it's not a general meeting, it's, it's about Batman. And I was like, Oh, okay, well, okay, I'll, I'll meet with them. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so I had the meeting. Now I read the script. And at that point, Ben was supposed to be doing the movie originally. And so I read the script and I, I I totally understood why they wanted to do that version of the movie. But I thought, I knew that for me, everything I do, I have to have a personal way in. I have to have something in it that kind of allows me to have a compass so that as I'm going through, and we're talking about every decision that we're making, I know that there's something in me that sort of is pointing to my north star. So I have to have that. And this script, it was it was totally valid. It was very exciting. It was like a kind of a James Bondy an action film, right? Action film. It was like another, and it was connected to the DCU. There were like big characters from the other movies. And so I thought the meeting was about me saying, "I think I'm not your guy," and then going back to the Apes film. And an interesting thing happened because when I said, "Listen," I totally get why you want to do this and it's great and I'm just not the person. They said, well, wait, what would you want to do? Which weirdly is exactly what happened to me on the Apes films because I thought for sure, well, I see what you're doing and then you're not going to want to do what I want to do. And they said, well, no, what what would you want to do? And I said that I really wanted to do a story that put Batman as a character um, at the center of the arc, at the center of the character story so that it wasn't about him – you know obviously at that in, at that stage there wouldn't you wouldn't do an origin tale because it was Ben, and so I was like well I, what I don't want to do, what I've often seen is at a certain point, once you go through that very emotional story for Batman, the stories start to slant more toward the rogues gallery characters and and those you know, there have been some great ones, I mean amazing ones. But I was like, but I would love to do something where you take an imperfect Batman and give him a story, a detective story, go back to the noir sort of elements, the Bob Kane, the Bill finger stuff. And then find a way to have that story take him on a journey that sort of, uh, I guess, sort of reveals the corruption, the history of the city, but ends up doubling back and becoming very personal and talking about the origins that we don't see so that it became something that could rock him and that his character could have an awakening so that you could have an imperfect Batman that would have to find a way to evolve by the end of the story. Because a lot of times that character, I think, at a certain point becomes sort of very rigid. He, you're sort of like, okay, so the rogues galleries come in, and he knows he's on the right side, and he goes after them as hard as he can. And he's willing to sacrifice himself, but he's kind of already mastered himself, and I wanted a character who hadn't mastered himself. and And I said, I also felt that by doing that, you could create a very emotional Batman story. So one of the things that was important to me was the intimacy that you were talking about. I wanted this to be an emotional story. And... I said, and if you like that idea, you have to wait for me for like six months before I can even begin to tell you anything more about it because I've got to go back and finish this apes thing. And to my utter shock, they decided to wait. And then in the interim, Ben was reevaluating what he wanted to do and and he he ended up stepping out of the film and then, then the opportunity to sort of still tell that story but to put it back into earlier years. That's when the idea of doing kind of a year two Batman came out and that's how all of that began.
0: And the way you approach the character of Batman feels completely fresh, and <clears throat> it, it, it always to me in the past there's been a big a big difference between Bruce Wayne and the Batman, and yeah. to me, they feel much closer sure and was that something that you and Robert worked on together? or yeah how did that well, kinda... you
1: know what I wanted to figure out how to do was how to approach Bruce Wayne in a way that was fresh and different. and I felt like he had to be the Bruce Wayne that we know. He comes from you know this sort of storied history. But I figured, you know, if you had experienced something like that in your childhood, there are different ways you could respond. You know, you have all of these resources. You could become, in order to sort of hide, you could become a playboy. You could do all these things. And obviously that could then become a secret mask to do, as you've seen in so many of the stories. But I thought, well, there's another response too. I almost thought of like the Kennedys or like British royalty and the idea of Something happening that was tragic and that it had just the opposite effect, which is that he would withdraw. He'd become kind of a recluse. He'd become almost like, you know, Howard Hughes or something. Um, And I thought that this idea of this guy who hadn't, because he was in the early days, sort of connected to the idea that he could use that wealth in a way that could maybe draw a team around him. Other than Alfred, it's him. So it's this guy by himself and I kind of somewhere in there I started listening to I always listen to music when I'm writing and I started listening to something in the way
2: The Nirvana the, that, the, the, the song, Nirvana yeah.
1: song and there was literally something in that I said oh this is the tone I sort of kind of get what he should be based on this and I almost saw him as like a rock. I saw him as, obviously, he's quite different physically than Kurt Cobain. But this idea of this guy who's sort of very, sort of drawn into himself, kind of a creative troubled soul who kind of had his amps all over his, you know, decaying manner, his de- decaying Wayne, Wayne manner. And the amps in this case would be all of the projects, you know, building his car, doing all of the stuff that he would do on himself. So that was this idea of kind of trying to find a way. Honestly, he doesn't know how to be Bruce Wayne in this movie Mm -hmm. so when he there's a moment where he sees an opportunity to use Bruce Wayne as a cover because the weird thing and this is one of the things in writing the story that was sort of um, a challenge is that if you're going to try and ground this practically which is one of the things that was important to me there isn't anything practical about being Batman. Because when you're wearing a cowl and you're looking for crime, you are the most visible thing on the street. Like, what are you going to do? Walk by a Seven Eleven? 11 and go, that guy's in a cowl. I've seen that guy before. That guy, what's going on? I drive around in your Batmobile. Like, you can't do any of that. So, but you also can't be Bruce Wayne because Bruce Wayne is a legendary figure. So, there was a... Um, there was a something in, go- in my deep dives going back to uh, the Frank Miller Mazzucchelli Year One, and in it, there's a moment before he comes back becomes Batman, where Bruce Wayne goes to the East End, and he's dressed kind of as this drifter. And in the in the notes in the commemorative edition, you can see that Frank Miller wrote to Mazzucchelli, and he said, "In it, Bruce looks like he just won the Travis Bickle look-alike contest, and so <laughs> he's wearing like uh, this sort of drifter outfit." And I was like, "Oh, we could use that." And then somewhere in the story, I realized, oh, wait, there's a moment here where he's gonna realize it's actually an advantage to be Bruce Wayne when there's the scene that where he goes to the mayor's memorial and there his disguise is being Bruce Wayne but he actually doesn't know how to be Bruce Wayne so as everyone approaches him and says Bruce Wayne he's just like I don't want any of this so it's a weird thing where it's an advantage he's kind of undercover as Bruce but it also he has to deal with the stuff that's the baggage that is the thing about being someone so famous who's been that famous since childhood and doesn't want to have anything to do with it
0: yeah yeah so you teed up about twelve different questions that I want to that I want to <laughs> okay, ask cool. about that, and and obviously to draw you guys into the conversation. I mean, th- this is, it's extraordinary to have uh, uh, as long a run together as a filmmaking team as you have all had since Cloverfield in what two thousand seven. So fifteen years, you guys have been working together um, wow. as a as a team, <laughs> uh, doing some just uh, some truly amazing work. And so you said you were th- you think about music. Uh, you you write with music and you're thinking about music and uh, obviously the Nirvana song was something that popped up, that that I didn't know about about. that.
3: You didn't know that? No. Yeah. I honestly, I never knew about that. I never (laughs) told you that? No. That's so
1: interesting. That's so cool. Can I just say one of the things that not to sort of interrupt right here, but one of the things that was really, one of the first people I called was Michael and you know, Michael and I have this relate. I mean, I love Michael and, and we, I love, these guys. And and we, there's a reason why we've worked together for 15 years. It's like I can't imagine making a movie without these guys. And Michael loves Batman as much as I do. And one of the things he said to me, he goes, I'd love to do something we've never had the chance to do. And I said, what? And he said, I want to write the musical suite, which he always does. At the, there's always an amazing moment on the movie where, he, where like he's seen a rough cut of the movie that's like 16 hours long, and he goes, okay, I saw it, I have some ideas, and he plays me this thing, and then I cry. <laughs> and Michael said, we're going to do that before you ever shoot a frame. And so not only did I listen to Nirvana... But I listened to Michael's music, and we played – I played my, the music. Michael did this suite for us, which is the music from the movie. I mean, he created all this. He would. He was sitting – he sent me a little thing, and he's sitting there playing piano. He goes, what do you think? I was going, like, oh, my God. And then he surprised me on the night before um, – Rob Pattinson was supposed to do his screen test so I drove up to the studio. It was like one of these things where you think, oh my god, we're in the history, we're making this Batman movie. Michael has just written this incredible score and I just got it on an MP4 that he sent me which he called Multil Mysterioso. I was like, what is this? <laughs> it was like a total surprise, which if you know Michael you understand, like he's, this is the way Michael is. And I was sitting in the car and Dylan Clark, who's my partner, came and he was ready to go inside. I said, no, 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 get in the car. And he sat in the car and I turned up the music and we both listened to it and we both cried I was like we're doing this this is crazy so we had that music from the very beginning anyway not to usurp I want you to talk about it but, it but it was just like Michael did something very special on this movie that I've never been able to experience before which was he wrote this music
3: yeah you know Matt and I talk a lot about this stuff prior to him usually going in filming and all of that I mean we have a lot of conversations about it we also love so many of the same things and we also the fact that he was interested in doing it from a perspective of someone who's a, a, a detective, an imperfect detective, someone who's still figuring out their life, and that there was going to be so much sadness surrounding all of this and so much uncertainty and so, so much a conflict of identity. I, I loved all of that because those are sometimes words that are thrown into other films and other things, but they usually don't coalesce into the, the, the truth that you want to feel, you know? And this... Matt has a way of always bringing out that, that truth, the ugly truth of what is. And I latched onto that so early on and I got so excited about that. And I remember just sitting down at my piano. It was not even in my studio, was in the house. I was walking by and I was like, Oh, I have a, and I started messing around with this thing and it was felt. And I was like, Oh, is this too simple? Is this too, <laughs> is this, am I going to get yelled at for this? But, but every time I tried to do something different with it, it just kept pulling me back to this other idea. And, uh, and, and I that's what I played for Matt. And we had an opportunity to actually record it too prior to his screen test. That was the surprise. He didn't know I had actually recorded it uh, with an orchestra and then sent it to him so he got to hear it that way. So for me, it was just, you know, all I knew is in my head, if I were, what would I hear in my head if I were Batman? What would I hear in my head if I were Bruce Wayne? And, and to me, those were two. Things that could work together or work separately. So I wanted that to be able to overlap somehow. And I kept thinking, if I'm walking down the streets, I literally just kept envisioning everything he kept telling me, and how would I want to feel, or what would that make me feel like, you know? And everything I write really does come from a place of how would I feel if I were in that situation, if that were if that were me being exposed to all of these experiences how would that make me feel and it's it, and it's hard to do sometimes because especially with Matt it's hard to do because it's it's usually things that make you examine areas of yourself that you don't want to look at you mm-hmm. know and uh, but but in order to get to that truth you have to do it so it's it's a bit like acting I guess
1: yeah that's what you're describing is You're like a method actor. Yeah. 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 And
3: it's and then and at the end of the day it's you're tired. You know? (laughs) You're exhausted. Because you're you it's like going to therapy for eight hours and you're just kinda like, you know. But that's I feel like that's why I love working with him because when you walk out of whatever it is he's doing, you always feel a sense of truth to it. And that's 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 what I look for in almost anything, you know, just that sense of truth. So I can feel like I actually I experienced something there.
0: So did you have those pieces to play back on set for actors? Did you like use that to to get people?
1: One of the things, yeah, I did. Because one of the things that I, um, so like Rob, when we first, Rob, of course, wanted to completely immerse himself as well. Here's a weird thing too about it, which is that in terms of Rob, once I started writing the younger version, I started looking at actors and I just very early on, for some reason, I just knew it was Rob. I wanted it to be Rob. And I thought, and Rob had done all of these sort of um, indie, movies, worked with really, really great directors, and who knew if he would ever want to go back to doing a blockbuster? You know, I didn't know if that would be interesting to him. But I was like, it's got to be Rob, in a, in a kind of like insane way that made no sense. Turns out that he was obsessed with Batman, I guess, as you know, so many people are. And he, when he found out I was doing it, really was interested and was tracking it secretly on his own and then we ended up connecting together and once we had that moment where first we met and we went we talked about the script for a long time and I was like oh I love this guy and then we did the screen test and then after we did the screen test actually interesting thing I took the piece of music from the screen test there was some there was this thing crazy thing we did where he was wearing you have to do we have to wear a bat suit Literally, to do a screen test. This is one of the things. They have to make sure you look okay as Batman. It's so, I mean, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but every Batman, obviously, other than Keaton, because Keaton was the first of the Warner Brothers run, he wouldn't have put on Adam West's suit because that would have been a little strange. But literally, when you come in, you can't make... Your own bat suit so you have to wear one of the old ones so and it happened for every single one of them they put on the old bat suit so we went to the archives we looked at that he put on he ended up wearing he claims it's george clooney i thought it was kilmer whatever it is it had nipples <laughs> <laughs> and when he was auditioning i was like oh you know what's really cool there was a moment where he didn't have the cowl on and i thought he looked so cool and i was like you know what i'd love to do i said i'd love to just take you and have you go against the mirror and just put on the eye makeup and we just put it, bathed him in red light. And this became a signature thing. I was like, oh, we have to put this in the movie. And Rob did it so magically it was like I thought he he was like looked like a young Marlon Brando or something putting it on his eyes and for the test to show the studio to tell them there was no question in my mind that it was Rob, I played Michael's music so I was like well there's something special about today's test and we put it up on the screen and everyone watched it and it was a very magical moment, and so that music is a big part I mean obviously Rob was great as well but that music was transporting because that scene wasn't one of the planned scenes and when you just saw him putting on that makeup and hearing that Bruce Wayne it's the very very emotional Bruce Wayne music and he's putting it on. I was like, I just, I don't know what this movie is, but I want to see this movie. And so when we started then, once it was Rob, I said, hey, listen, I'm going to give you everything that I have to give you a download. And he looked at all of these stills and these comics that I had read and just the movies that were references for me. And uh, stuff. there was a book called Mindhunter, which was all about uh, profiling serial killers. And that was important to me. But I had Michael's music. And when I played it for Michael's music, played him Michael's music, he called me up and he said, oh my God, all of that reference was so helpful. He said, but the one thing that really... sort of got me the thing that tells me the most about who this guy is is michael's music so yes i did play it for him i played the music for everyone and there were times that i would play it on the set but this was a key for rob to get into the character so like i said it was a very unusual and a special experience and michael's music was was key to everything it was really cool
0: so guess what every director is going to want you to (laughs) pre-compose that's an interesting challenge how do you compose without without the picture
3: it's i think it's about understanding the material it's about being able to imagine what what is coming you know and 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 again in talking with matt you know there is such a sort of a deep relationship between us that that you know there was no misunderstanding the direction he wanted to go in that is for sure you know and then it was about me okay that direction how do i envision that direction cuz usually i do rely on a early cut or something that he's done to go oh here's where you're going and this was something where it was more like okay I embraced everything you told me and I just then just use my imagination about where I would go with that, if, if you know, or what felt right to me. What felt I keep using the word truthful, but that's really what it's all about. What felt truthful to
2: me? Quite freeing, uh, though, right?
3: It is. It is. It's really freeing. Yes. No. It's. It's also scarier because you're putting <laughs> something out there that you're like, I don't know, because there's not a frame of film has been shot, so I don't know. This could be, you know, looked at and thrown out. But but. Uh, but in terms of just creativity and making something yeah it's it's much much more freeing you know well, and, and the music side.
1: guides the way that it's cut too because then we have the music to cut to usually what happens is you temp now I'm always temping with michael's music but sometimes as a piece, he doesn't hasn't done something like a tone of this thing and so we're pulling in this and that and shaping something and then michael looks at that and says oh i think i have my own version of where i can do that this will be really mine and michael takes the music and does something you never would have imagined but in this case we actually had from the beginning as we were putting scenes together yeah. the music and so you actually you get into a dialogue with the particular you know the image and the music like obviously with that particular theme that michael talks about with the repetitive thing that put That was completely from what we had described, this kind of obsessiveness. But then when you hear it, that brings images to mind. And then suddenly the way that I'm shooting it has something to do with this dialogue about the music. And it went all the way through the cutting that way, too. Anyway, I didn't... Well, no, I was just thinking about how modern
4: movie music tends to be so in love with sync the picture. And that's not actually that helpful for what we're trying to achieve, which is moving the audience, Mm -hmm. right? And so, if you just if everything's involved with trying to hit a cut or something like that, it just doesn't work emotionally the way we would most benefit from it working.
0: Yeah, you know. You, you said that I'm getting this sense of like, in you know, in, in that Star Wars franchise when they put the blast helmet on, and then you can feel the force even better because you're like not that. you're not limited by what you're seeing. That's right. I, I love you talking about. Um, Talking to Michael early, those first conversations, what about on sound design? How did you engage with Will and Douglas, and at what point in the process did that start to happen? When did you start thinking about the sound design for
1: the film? Early on, no. I mean, here's the thing. I always write. Here's the thing. To me, when I begin writing something, that's tr- the first time you're trying to make the movie, right? You're trying to figure it out. And I, I always think of the creative process for me. This is why I'm a particular I'm not particularly fast, but part of it is that for me, what the creative process is, is that it's like being in a room with no lights on and everything you need is in the room, but you have no idea where it is and you're on hands and knees and you are just crawling until something you grab feels like the right thing. And when you start gathering those things, it starts to sort of connect. And that's how I feel. That's that's so I live in utter terror and desperation. That's basically how (laughs) that works. And on the page, I start trying to think, well, what does it look like? I'm trying to watch the movie on the page. And so I'll describe shots and I will describe sound. And I'm always thinking of these guys. In fact, when we did Let Me In on on Skywalker, they set me up in a room because they said, oh, you know, you could come to Skywalker and write, which I had never done either. And, you know, you made me this soundscape. You both made me this soundscape with this little piece of... um, of Arvo part music, right? But then you created all these winds on it. And so as I was writing, I write to sound. And so I'm always thinking of sound because it's. I like the idea that movies, for me, what I get transported into sort of movies is the subjective experience. I like the idea of going through a film in the shoes of a character who you aren't and being in that character's shoes, even as he does things you'd like to think you would never do, or things that challenge you, things that upset you, and putting you in there so squarely that you go like, "Oh, I can see why he did that. I'd like to think I wouldn't do that, but I can understand why he did that." And for me, that's the way movies are about empathy, right? And so, and then obviously, when they're, when somebody's doing something, you know, if it's Batman, you want to think, "Wow." I don't think I'd ever have the courage to do that, but all of that kind of stuff too. So for me, the idea of sound being part of the subjective and emotional experience happens right from the beginning. And we did talk right? I mean, I shared the script with you guys early on. Yeah, and, yeah. and 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 Before we started shooting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. one of the things that's important to me is this sense of um not in trying to create the subjective you're not only doing stuff that's about perspective, which we often are dealing with and trying to, you know, how, how it's put together, but also just the sense of, the, for me, the movie, because it's, in an emotional space, there's a bit of that uncanny thing. And and the drone work that these guys do is super important to the mood of the thing because it creates a tremendous sense, in addition to Michael's music, of creating dread and the sense of atmosphere. And so there's a, there's a level of subjectivity that was super important to me. Like in noir, it leans even more squarely the way I wanted to do it. I wanted you to be in his shoes. If he gets knocked out, you're going to get knocked out and you, if, all of those things. And so the sounds um, were super important. And I think... We were talking about you guys were recording rain mm-hmm. and stuff very early on, and there was stuff in oh, the yeah. production. And, well, and also, what Stuart Wilson did with us, too, our amazing production recorders, who also, like these guys, are like method sound guys. Mm-hmm. And that he, he would record that kind of stuff to us, too. So, yeah, we there begin was the, that.
5: Uh, during the uh, COVID hiatus of yes. the shoot, mm-hmm. yeah. you had a, uh, a convention where you had to make a spot.
1: Oh, we had to do. Oh, that was really cool. Yeah, we really plugged
5: in, and was about, that was like DC a, fandom. Like a, that was oh, yeah. so for the oh, okay, teaser right. trailer.
1: It was a weird moment because yeah. there was a moment when the film stopped, and
0: you were about just a, a few weeks into photography, right? We when were probably COVID- uh,
1: we were about a quarter of the way into the shoot, and with a tremendous amount left to shoot, and there was a moment where. I mean obviously the whole world was this way we didn't know what was going to happen and and even so you know the way that this happened is they all film studios did a thing called they they declared force majeure and a force majeure means an act of god which means the movie's gone So now we had this belief that we would come back, but I didn't know. But one thing that told me that we were probably coming back is that the studio, even as we were force majeure, was saying, now we're going to try and do this fandom thing so that people can see. And I was like, oh, my God, we only have a quarter of the footage. And me and my family were stuck in London because we decided, well, we can't relocate again. So I guess we just wait here. So here we are, you know, being in this pandemic in everybody's terrified all across the world, and we are not even home. And we're just like, they were, it looked like 28 days later, like it was like you'd be, you look out on the streets outside, and we go, there's no one in London. This is so weird. And so the only thing I had to focus me was that I would go up into, you know, I had a link to the dailies and stuff, and we could talk about because there was no cut. And so I'd be saying to the marketing people, well, I think I, I love this stuff and that. And we started getting into this dialogue. And one of the critical things was that we were going to do the sound for that. And so okay. these guys started diving into. The sounds of the batmobile the sounds of the atmosphere right. of all of the rain and all of it. Right. that because there's the whole scene with the, the voice, the voice. Yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah batman's punches what does that yeah. feel like yeah, yeah. You know? yeah exactly I and mean, literally the stuff we made for the trailer almost all of it made it into the movie yeah the oh, Batmobile sound yeah the bad all that stuff i made for Iconic. the batmobile yeah. stuck i mean we expanded on him uh, obviously yeah. but you know the, the the punch the scene when he punches the guy and then says i'm vengeance we looped that line for the trailer, yeah, yep. and all those punches I cut, all that stuff went into the movie just as we yeah. had it in the trailer. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. When it works, you don't mess. Well, with it. Well, that's exactly yeah. right.
1: One of those yeah. things where we felt like it worked, and then the, the you know, obviously when we shared it with everyone, everyone was kind of like transfixed by that moment. It was like, let's not break it. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. really works. Yeah, well, that's
3: what I liked about what, what, the way you work. You were saying about feeling around in the dark, but once you do grab onto something, you trust it. Mm-hmm. You yeah. trust it, and it stays. So it's not like someone who's constantly getting insecure and second guessing everything they do. And I'm not saying insecurity isn't a part of all the way to the finish. It absolutely <laughs> Thank is. Thank God,
1: because I'm super insecure. <laughs> it is, but
3: you're not, you're not reacting it to it in a way in which is, well, let me just swap it out for something that's different no. as opposed to better. You know yeah. what I mean? A lot no, of times- No, you have to
1: become an emotional compass. Yes. Like to me, that is the job of the director is that because you have so many incredibly creative people who you're working with, right? And you want, here, I make a movie in my head on a piece of paper. That's one version of the movie and it's a very narrow band of what that movie could be and then you work with these artists and you want everyone to bring something and then my job is to not only sort of say like no wait this is I will lay this down can we try and realize this moment or somebody has an idea I have to be an emotional compass to say that idea is great. That idea really works. Somebody has to do that. And the way you do that is by immersing yourself into that thing. And I have a thing where even in my notebooks and stuff, I write things down. And every time I have an idea, I think it's the first time. And then I'll look back. <laughs> and i look back, and I've had that idea about 16 times. And when that happens, I go, that must be an idea I want to do. Yeah. And so I do at a certain point start to settle in on those ideas. But at the beginning, you have nothing but the blank page, right? You have nothing. That's what, yeah. what you, when you have music, you have the blank page. <laughs> yes. What are you supposed know, to do?
3: The, the the keyboard is like a shark's mouth. <laughs> <It's> yeah. Like, <laughs> you're putting your hands into that. And you're like, oh. yeah, Staring at the blank canvas yeah.
1: is the
4: hardest part of the creative process. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And I figured out at some point in my career, actually probably on Cloverfield, like I have to just put something in there, yeah. even if it's the total wrong thing. I've mm-hmm. got it because I have to react to it. Yes. You know, and you, and you put something in, you walk, you know, you do something else, and you come back to it, and you go, huh, that's actually pretty good. Or you go, that doesn't work at all, yeah. <laughs> because maybe you figured something else out later that then, you know, influences back to that early thing. Yeah. But yeah, the blank canvas is the hardest part of the process.
1: And that's it. We have to become the first audience. You know what I mean? That's it. We're like, we all want to see this movie. We want to be affected by it in some way. And you're trying to tell this story. And all you can do over the course of, this movie took five years from the moment that I signed on. Like it took me a long time to write. I'm embarrassed to say and <laughs> it took a long time to make. We had the pandemic and then we had this this mix was actually slightly shorter than what we usually have which scared yeah. the heck out of me.
0: But we were able Because it's to a big movie it. and it's 3 hours long. yeah,
1: so hey. yeah you, had, you had a lot of wait. <laughs> <laughs> Almost, but you yeah. earned every minute <laughs> Almost. of it. Almost. I, three three hours. You earned every
5: minute of it. Two <laughs> hours was <laughs> 50 something <laughs> minutes. Yeah. With titles. Yeah, with titles. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the Good same point. length as what? Uh, the Godfather?
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that why. I was listening, the only thing that matters is we just have to ma- match the length of the Godfather. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's
0: hilarious. Well, you brought up—I uh, love—you mentioned some specific moments uh, in that trailer, Will, that that uh, I wanted to follow up on. But um, one of the first things that I noticed uh, right away was the treatment of, of the vocals. So first of all, you've got that first with the, with the Riddler, which I want to talk about. But also, you know, previously— the treatment of the vocals for the Batman in previous iterations of this franchise has been the subject of some conversation, <laughs> uh, but you went in a completely different direction, Andy. I, I'm kind of curious about like how did you approach the vocal mixing, the vocals of, of the Batman, and 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 sort of making that tone and making it different from what yeah. we've done before.
2: Well, because I come on, really, I'm the last to come on the on the creative process here, which has an advantage in the sense that I come in with no history, no. Uh, you know we tried this we tried this i come into it as a fresh eye and ear to something that's going to be the final mix of the movie so when it, when it came to robert's voice for instance i mean that that's all just pure performance i mean it's 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 very clear to me that he found a place in his voice in his range in his acting that he needed to be at All I was gonna do was protect that because the tendency often with with the big soundtracks, of course, is that they get layered bigger and bigger and bigger and suddenly, you know, I have to be the kind of keeper at the end to say, hang on a minute, I don't think we can hear him very clearly anymore because, you know, everyone's got so used to the dialogue and and, you know, you start to hear the words in your head and you don't necessarily, uh, pay attention to the fact that we've, we have to make them as clear as possible so I think my job in that sense was just to protect his performance to be honest with you
1: yeah I mean you would say I don't know what he's saying there <laughs> I would uh, <laughs> which I
2: said many times the first time I watched the movie through I was like this is fantastic but we have to make sure we understand what's being said because it's just that's I'm the fresh person to the mix. And as a
1: result, know. I went back and re-recorded certain bits of it, too, because there were places where just based on the drama, like, for example, the sequence where he is that drifter character in the beginning of the story, I wanted it to feel very internal. And, and Rob and I worked on that tone for a long time to arrive at that voice. And Rob is an amazing actor because he has incredible technical facility. I've never worked with anyone who has this particular combination, which is that he he's incredibly emotionally connected, right? So he goes into a scene and he can really get into really, really pushing himself into places, but he's also incredibly technical. So I could say to him, listen, I need this moment to be even hotter and I need you to lean on your left foot. And he'd be like, okay. And so he would do that level of detail. And one of the things he could do, he told me actually not that long ago, because I was so interested in the way that he has such control of his, his instrument, of his voice. And I said, you know, Um, how, that's so interesting the way you do that. He said, well, you know, the voice is important to me in that he goes, even if I played somebody who has, because by the way, Rob has no dialect coach, right? So all these movies he does where he does the, he's an incredible mimic. It's scary. You're like, he didn't, just from the moment he came in, he was already doing this voice. And I was like, how does he know how to do that? Who's his dialect coach? He doesn't have any of that. And he said, but you know, even if I was playing, somebody who came from where I came from and spoke essentially with the same dialect, the same inflection, everything that I, that I speak in, it still wouldn't come out exactly the same way. It wouldn't sound like me because the voice is one of his ways in. And so we worked on that and then he arrived at that. And then in the cut, when we were looking at it, Andy was saying there's some places where it gets really big. And so we were like, we have gotta find a way performance-wise To get more projection, because I love the intimacy of him being really quiet. But Andy was absolutely right. You couldn't, there were some places, especially by the end, when your music is enormous in the right way, which is he's finally going to show up. The whole thing that Michael's music does at the beginning is it's teasing you. It's building slowly, slowly, slowly. And we're playing out all these shots. And then finally at the end, you're going, Oh my God, is he going to come out? Is he going to come out of the shadows? And he doesn't come out of the shadows yet. And it's really big. But at that point, we're like, Well, how can we do this? So because of what Andy said, I went back to Rob. I said, We have to find a way to let this build to let it come through and 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 so that was yeah
2: and i hated having to you know i always want to protect the original recordings as much as i can but in this instance i i was desperate that we went back and tried at least knowing that maybe it wouldn't work and we would have to use some of the originals but in the end i think we ended up with a bit of a combo uh, both yeah uh, and it worked great so uh, what an amazing
0: challenge for an actor doing a performance that's as intimate as Rob's is to then go back and then try to make adjustments like that in the ADR stage probably what a year after after
1: photography at least no yeah yeah whatever it was yeah
0: yeah the voice the voiceover
5: for that uh which is what we were talking about is uh there is that sort of crescendo of the music going on Mm -hmm. throughout that whole sequence which is in my mind, one of the most interesting sequences in the movie. It
4: was actually probably the hardest sequence other than the Batmobile Chase to mix. Yeah. And, to
5: really and the last record. reel. And, 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 <laughs> and the last reel, yeah. Okay. For, For those three. Yeah. I was just looking at my notes. We started on March 1st. Uh-huh. And at the end of April, you were still working on reel one. Yeah. With wow. Bill uh, in the cut. Yeah. And, you know, so th- it's, it's a complex scene. Sequence. Sure is, and uh, and then and anyway, with the with uh, Rob and the ADR, he he didn't like to use the headphones much during the ADR. But in that section, he lo- he wanted to listen to the music and the build so that he could feel the build of energy and and come well, through. Well that's it. actually what made sense too, yeah. right? Cuz yeah. in a
1: way what he was doing was he, he was internalizing the music. The music is a reflection of what's going on inside him. So he's he starts coiled and then as it starts to build the intensity, he found the path to saying like that he knows he's going to come out and this whole story, one of the ar- the arc of the story really and the awakening that I wanted is I wanted to begin in a place of the desire for vengeance. And then I wanted and and you know, you're, it's a Batman movie, so you want to watch that right you're, there's there's a level of us that all you know this is like a hitchcockian thing right he would always implicate implicate the viewer by drawing the man you're watching you're going like oh that moment and then suddenly you're going like wait i'm watching this like a voyeur myself and i'm actually enjoying watching this to a degree and batman is about to kick some ass and you know what i want him to but then over the course of the story the story is meant to unsettle you in a way and ask if that's the question and you get to a place where suddenly he's like wait is that the path is that what i should be doing and that is really one of the that was one of the very early concepts of what i wanted And I think one of the things that really helped in this voiceover section, off of Andy's note, that we needed to get more of that projection, that off of Michael's music, there's an intensity. And it's building from that very personal place, which is that, you know, what Rob and I talked about is that every time he encounters this whole thing, he's very dysfunctional, this character, obviously, right? (laughs) And, you know, people think of him as a hero. But the truth is, this is a guy who's trying to make sense of his life, and he's never gotten over these events, and it's the only way he can make sense of anything. He's trying still to cope with what happened to him. He's stuck, actually, in certain ways at being 10. He hasn't evolved in certain ways. And so every time he sees someone who's doing something that he thinks is contributing to the criminal sort of side of what's going on in Gotham, to them, it's the same people who killed his parents. He just keeps seeing that again and again. So it was making it very personal, and the music was doing that, and so this idea of building made total sense, and Rob did that. Rob, as he's listening to that music, that's his own rage building. It's building a building and you can hear it. It's interesting. I'd be curious to take that track and actually pull out the music and you'd hear this build to where it starts very intimately. And then it starts getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And then he had done this one thing that I loved at the end where on the very last thing, he has this line where he says, they think I'm hiding in the shadows. And then all of a sudden the, the whole thing releases and the music releases. And then he says, but I am the shadows, which was almost this kind of like Rob did this thing that was almost like a mystical kind of thing and so I wanted to see I didn't know if we were going to be able to do it that was why I was almost resistant like gosh we're going to build him back up but that last line is so intimate again and it actually totally works it gets to this place he's like they think I'm hiding in the shadow and then it's almost like he kind of zens out and he says but I am the shadows yeah. and you're like whoa <laughs> so it's cool that's a great yeah. moment
0: uh, I want to hear about the sound design of the Batmobile <laughs> that was such a thrilling satisfying moment it, when Well,
4: that... largely because of the way Matt constructed the. Scene. And, of course,
0: we hear it before we see it. <clears throat> that's <clears throat> so, right.
4: That's exactly what I mean. Yeah, it's so fun. I mean, it's literally hiding in the shadows, right? And the way Matt described the Batmobile was that he's using it to scare them. I mean, a lot of a lot of Batman, when he's in the suit, it's designed to be a threat. He's You know, he's almost just trying to scare everybody even more than he is trying to kick their ass, right? And that's one of his tools. So the Batmobile is not only designed to go fast, it's also designed to look and sound... Aggressive and intimidating, and so I, I was, you know, sort of like Michael, thinking about trying to. Okay, if I had built that car and I wanted it to do this, how would I make it sound? Right? Because of course you can tune an engine to sound any kind of different way. Um, and so the first element I came up with was the whine, the the, the sort kind of, of turbine, high pitch thing. Yeah. And the the temptation with that is to just use like a like a helicopter turbine or some other kind of mechanical turbine. That has that kind of thing, but I I wanted it to sound weirder than that, <laughs> you know, for lack of a better term. Um, and so I was tr- I was thinking, well, how can I make this out of something more like a shriek, or more like something that was more primal,
0: like animalistic. Almost, yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. And
4: and 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 so often when I'm when I'm looking for sounds like that, I'll just start looking through my library and typing in words that have emotions, like scary or shriek or panic or you know whatever it is. And I started assembling some sounds. I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. And I found this... Bottle rocket sound. It was just like, like it was literally like oh, woo.
1: That's what like it That's is.
4: that's it. It was like a one like a one second sound.
6: <laughs>
1: that thing. Like, yeah. Meow! Yeah. You know, yeah. That's yeah. it.
4: And, I, and it was like kind of distorted. It was like a little over modulated, and there was something about it that had this really raw sound to it. But it was like literally one second. I was like, well, that's so cool, but that's nah, not going to work. And I kept you know looking for other things, and I was trying stuff, and I kept going back to this bottle rocket. And I think, oh, okay, what? How could I make that into a thirty second sound? Because that's what it needed to be, really, for that whole wine up. And so I started looking into some interesting processing and that you know tried running it through long reverbs and that sort of thing which is kind of kind of useful but it doesn't it, it loses its character it just turns into like a sound and echo basically right so I found this thing there was this like a few years ago somebody on YouTube posted this thing that was a Justin Bieber song slowed down 800% and it turns into something that sounds like Sigarose or something really beautiful and like haunting. And I was like, well, maybe there's something to that. Let me f- figure out what was that software. And it turns out it's this, this algorithm called Paul Stretch. And it's like, you know, command line kind of thing. And you can basically, it, it somehow breaks it up into little samples and then stretches them out individually and layers them. And I don't even, I don't even know how it works, but basically you can slow a sound down by like you know 100x right and it turns into this crazy version of itself and so what i did was i i made some di- some different length versions of of the sound and then i stretched you know just a little bit and then a little bit more and then a little bit more and then a hell of a lot more and then i layered all those so that you still had the original the initial kind of pop of it at the beginning and then it turned into this kind of like builder riser thing and then i of course i took that and i and i gave it even more of kind of a a rise to it, so it was functioning musically, you know, as a riser, because Michael, in his way that's always so amazing, every time there's a moment that a lot of other composers would just completely, you know, cr- like, there's a big explosion, and there's a giant, you know, <laughs> brass riff right, right over it, sure. but he always builds to it, to the moment, and then, Holds for a second and then comes back in right when I you want the door to. open. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and like we've talked about this a million times, but it's, it's always such a joy when it's you're so working good. with Michael and you get to one of those moments in the score and you go, he understands how this functions. <laughs> you know, This is so great. Because in a lot of ways, I think uh, Michael thinks like a director, which is, you know, we're, we're all always trying to put our director hats on and think how should this function cinematically, but um, you know, it's not always the case. So anyway, that was one of those things where i knew it needed to function musically because it was it needed to carry that moment um, so that's why I wanted to have that kind of riser thing to it. So that was the that was the did main. Did you do all that work for the teaser trailer? I did. Yeah, yeah, I did. Well, right. luckily it was in the middle of the pandemic, so I just, yeah. That was like a year ago. I could, could ago. just stay up all night doing. I had nothing else I mean, to do. It was more oh, right. than a year yeah. ago. It was a year and, yeah. and a half ago. Yeah. So
1: yeah, it's
3: the greatest thing in the world. That it, yeah, it's the greatest. It, thing is. Okay. It's, it's yeah. Great.
1: Yeah. it is. It is. It is just. I like, know. I just. My wife just saw the movie. We just had a little had a little screening, and literally when that moment happens, where the car goes, she she went like this. It was like, and you could just feel like everyone instinctively know. And
4: that's the feeling I wanted, was that feeling of like a bottle rocket just went off next to you. You know, it's like, because the penguin is, he's about to do something real bad. And it's interesting because
1: we did a thing where, remember editorially how over the course of the evolution of that scene, there was a place where... Because there's a growl you did too. Mm-hmm. The key is because the the, the 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 car is supposed to be a beast, right? right? And it needs to be. It needs to appear out of the shadows the way he appears out of the shadows, and it needs to intimidate. And so you had these different elements, and one of them was that bottle rocket mm-hmm. thing, which I never knew was a yeah. bottle rocket, which is super cool. <laughs> and, and, and then I the you other is that I couldn't tell him
4: until we were done because you never know how some directly,
1: <laughs> That's like we can't put a
4: bottle rocket in for the Batmobile. Like, I no. didn't <laughs> I <mean, what> <laughs> know <talking> you <about>? <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't say that, but
1: <laughs> I mean, we were on Cloverfield, like you know, you had me run around you, go, ah, 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 like <laughs> that's true. like we did, like you know, we're Sure. Anything you Matt's think is down cool. for anything. Yeah. yeah. But, but the thing is, is that the other part was this growl thing, which was, what was that? What was the engine? That well, the used?
4: engine, so the, uh, there was actually three things, right? So there's the there's the, the wine. Yes. And then there's the what was rocket the blast. Yeah. And then there's the actual engine turning. So road. that's turning what over. I'm talking about, the engine turning. Yeah. What what car was that? Uh, so that's a 72, well, it's a combination of a 72 Bronco and a, and a 1980 Bronco. Okay. Um, and because we, one Bronco
0: simply won't. Do that. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well,
4: but basically, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a, it's it's a big block Ford V eight. It's from the seventies. It's basically seventies right. tech, and we auditioned. I mean, well, because we we'll wanted to be like though, a yeah, like a seventies car. Yeah, and the it thing took about us twelve different engines to figure out the right engine.
1: Yeah, because it was important to me that it would be a muscle car, right? It's I, th- a I 70s thought you know car, I, we'd seen right. the Batmobile be a rocket. We'd seen it have all of these qualities, and I thought, well, this one, it's him building, so he should feel like a gearhead. He's down there. He's probably got a bunch of kit car stuff that he's put together, and he's building this car that evokes. Other cars, but is not like any car you've quite seen. So it did all of that. And so the sound had to do that. And as we were evolving that scene, there was a moment where, you know, because there were two different aspects of it, there was a moment where you led with the growl at one point. And that was cool. Mm -hmm. But it was one of these things where when we looked at it creatively, we just started looking at the scene going like, oh, but wait a minute. Because the whole point was to sort of get you know, obviously, Selene is in trouble at that moment, and Penguin is coming for her. And so, essentially, what we wanted that moment to be was this is him scaring him to save her life. That's essentially what's going on. And if it was too literal too soon, if you knew it was a car, it almost ruined the scene. Not didn't ruin it, but it was over because there's a long buildup, right? So once you know it's a car, you're going like, so Penguin, why are you standing there? But when the when the bottle rocket starts, you're like, what? is that, and that is actually his reaction, right? And so Colin's standing there. We didn't have any of those sounds yet, but because of what you did, it was exactly right. So we actually flipped those editorially and started leading more with this idea of because the bottle a part of it is quite mysterious and weird, and yeah. it's amazing how it works. Matt
4: but, basically called over and said, "Yeah, you know, could could you give us those things separated?" Because the way we work with Matt is we we make a bunch of stuff and we sort of mix a crude version of the scene, and then we send him stems. in the while abbot, he's cutting, while he's cutting, so okay. that him and Bill can a start lot of times in build, five, one.
1: You've yeah, got them, yeah. five one. Yeah, usually
4: five one, and yeah. usually you know it's just a basic split effects, foley backgrounds, and sometimes sound design separately for like the drones and stuff. Um, but. That's what it's interesting about that process is we make stuff with maybe one intention, we give it to Matt and Bill, and then they take it and kind of not only remix it internally, but also sometimes use things in ways that we didn't expect. Um, and in this case, he basically called over and said, hey, can, I, can you separate those things and just send it for like stereos? And then they sent it back and I saw what they had done, which is they basically took the three elements and they pasted it out so that it kept... So it was building, just kept, t- yeah. kept it was topping building. Building. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, of course, why didn't I think of that? But,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's always it's reacting emotionally to what right. these incredible sounds. Yeah, yeah. and yeah.
4: it's 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 a cool thing about the way that we've evolved working together, just you know, on a technical level, which is that we have this back and forth with you know, Matt's obviously very busy putting the movie together, but there becomes this invisible feedback loop that we send stuff to the cutting room, and then we get it back with the next version, and we see what they've done. You know, and then that. Oh, okay. Oh, I see how this. You know, and then it's part of the. Yeah. So the the mix has been evolving over the
1: course of the entire cut, right? It starts from the beginning. So even by the time, by the time I when I first see the cut, like when Bill showed me the cut, it was it already had all of some some degree of all of this stuff in it from the beginning, you know. And so and then and then we just keep shaping and and reacting and evolving and and it has Michael's actually in this case, which is unusual. It had Michael's a lot of Michael's music because then Michael went to. Um, and it was one of my, it's heartbreaking to me cause we were, it happened and we were shooting, but, and of course the pandemic was later, but before we were shooting, they went to Abbey Road, which would have been one of my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> and we actually did record the music there, but being a pandemic, it was done virtually from yeah. my point of view, which is very sad. Um, but they recorded even more of the music cause Michael explored more themes, not like Selena's theme, and Riddler's theme, and then built them out even longer so that by the time we were cutting the movie, we already had an extensive amount of yeah. score. Yeah. yeah,
3: I went to, uh, I forget why I was even there, but it was in London. I was like, well, we're here. We, 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 we had to do something for the- Well, we for, it for, for the, the trailer. We did for, no, no, we did it for the boys' choir because you were oh, going to shoot yes. the choir. I said, well, if we're there doing this stuff, why don't we have a session where we just record a bunch of stuff I can test out, Selena's theme, you know, the Riddler, all of these things. And then I thought, well, why not just take the Batman theme and just do a bunch of different things with it and see what we could do. See, Just run it through its paces and do it very simply, build it up just slowly. So we came back with like 45, 50 minutes of music yeah. that I was able to say, here yeah, you go. So we had and, a lot. And, and and we were able to sort of, and some of it was earmarked for certain areas of the film. Like we thought, I thought something like this could be cool for this area or this area. But it was great to be able to just sit there and experiment and put it against picture and look at it. And, and, and some of that is in there some of it oh, totally. some, some of it was, well that was the
1: weird thing I remember when we were doing it and you were saying like hey you know you actually have like you're using this section and it's great we don't need to re-record that which is kind of incredible I mean yeah. there's parts yeah. of the music that yeah. is it's basically what was recorded yeah. before we while we were still shooting and very early on
0: well <clears throat> how does that affect the sound design when you have access to oh Michael's it's hugely music. beneficial mm.
4: especially because we expanded on in, in the, the Matt's past films we've done a lot of work with um Non musical or semi musical drones, we call them. It's like, you know, sound beds that, that you know, are supporting really what Michael's doing. But they're. And it
1: really started on Cloverfield because did. on Cloverfield, Michael wrote wonderful music and it played only over the end titles. Right. <laughs> and so the whole idea was yeah. to create music and the feeling of music with sound. To, and kind, and of, these to guys kind of hide, have done
0: hide music in the sound design. It's not yeah. really hiding
1: yeah. it, it is actually it's a musical here's the thing everything is i think my feeling is that you respond even on the page rhythm is everything right you react to things in rhythms and the set, dread is a certain kind of rhythm and so the repetitions of sounds the builds of sounds the the absence of sound the moment when the sound comes back in all of that stuff it's created through rhythm The way dialogue is presented, that moment where you can't say that thing, the reason something becomes emotional is because someone is struggling to the point where they can't say it. And you can feel them trying to say it, and it starts to get emotional. And then you're surprised when they say the thing you weren't expecting. And so rhythm is everything. And so the sound that these guys create, they're creating emotion, and they're creating a feeling. And that started, it did start in Clearfield. I remember there was one sequence in particular where I was like, we were down in the... um, In the uh, 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 the the subway, Mm -hmm. and we knew something bad was going to happen in the subway, and we didn't have any of the normal tools that we we couldn't. I couldn't turn to Michael and say, "Hey, can you do something that's going to draw out that suspense?" So we did it all with a musical sense of rising tones. This has become one of my favorite. I mean, then we did it again on Let Me In, all that stuff, because it was. I was like, "Oh my God!" It's in a way. I think of it as that kind of like David Lynch always does that very kind of like weird, eerie, uncanny sort of sound bed where you're going like, "Wait, something's happening," and I don't feel good about it. and you might be even like, yeah. and I mean, he does something that I've, I've rarely ever seen someone do as amazingly well as he does. He'll take a completely daytime scene, right? You look at it, and you go, "There's no reason why this should be scary," and I'm horrified. <laughs> what are you doing? And it has a lot to do with the well, sound. Well,
0: a lot of that is Alan split stuff, which
5: you know,
1: yeah.
0: you, you 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 got to work with Alan. Yeah, I did early on
5: uh, at Fantasy. And with Um, David Lynch, and with David Lynch a couple of times, and
1: I'm always asking you. So, what would David (laughs) do? What would David do?
5: (laughs) He put in an unsettling tone. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but which unsettling tone?
1: Yeah, and we have those throughout the movie. I mean, this movie, there's one. The sequence. I remember when we were putting it together, there were a whole series of sort of uh, drone beds that you were building, that for the scene where um, Coulson is being questioned and being given the riddles by the Riddler at City Hall, that that's a long dialogue scene where we didn't want... There's one place where the music starts to... Well, there's two places. One, when Batman emerges at yeah. the very beginning. And then there's a piece of music when uh, when the Riddler starts talking about his childhood and you start hearing this little... Sort of, you hear the vocal come in. But other than that, prior to that, it's all been... This unsettling music, which isn't music. It's all of the sound design in which you feel like, why am I so anxious? And you're anxious because that is the intention of the sound. It's doing all of that stuff.
4: And it and it always works best when we have Michael's music because it needs to function with the music, you know. Even if it's even if it's not even if it's not connected to music, which sometimes it you know, like in a case like that, there was these pieces that came in and out, but it still has to talk to the music in a way that makes sense for the film. And Doug hit on a really cool thing when we did let me in, where he was actually taking pieces of Michael's score and and running wind like making a sample and running winds through it and things like that to make yeah, it. yeah like a,
5: an impulse response yeah and doing convolution yeah so with like drones with a with a short clip of of some music that we had from yeah the, so wow. it
4: would almost become like. Like the wind was was continuing the feeling that the music had the, the started, music you know. was lingering in the air, yeah, right exactly. so that's that's you
5: know there's a lot of that way. in this, I yeah, feel like there is. you know,
1: there's especially in Arkham too, there's a great that piece of music that you wrote that takes us to Arkham, which is so scary. And then when finally, <laughs> The 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 screen lifts like I had always I was trying to think of that thing in High and Low. There's this great scene at the end of the movie where Tashir Mufuni finally sits down and faces this the 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 killer, uh, the kidnapper. And as it lifts, it you know, they're looking at each other, and you got you're like, who is this guy? And I wanted this to be like that. And you have this music that is so horrifying it's just so ominous and unsettling which I, it's one of my favorite cues i mean they're i don't know I love all of them. <laughs> but that moment is so dark but then i hear it every single time because we were recently doing mm-hmm. when we were doing the the joker scene right and when it stops there are these tonal things that are completely yeah. they're in tune with the music and it's not mm-hmm. the music anymore but you're just like a, there's these things that you did. Did yeah. you do that with that same? Uh
5: well, I contribute we we had a great team of sound effects people and I we, we all took our own passes on the film yeah. on the scenes and I often did the first pass of right. scenes like that and then Will would do a, a pass and where he would, it would mix it, would it and then Lee Gilmore would do something. He did a lot of the thing uh, the tones for that yeah. scene mm-hmm. that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, that's got mm-hmm. there's a kind yeah. of like
1: cry. It's a, like a little yeah.
5: yeah.
4: Yeah. Well, yeah. Luckily that, almost your, everyone on our team are musicians. So. Yeah, is that right? And I think the you know, most of the best sound sound design folks have some, if not musical background, at least a musical sense. Yeah. You know? You have to. Because it, I mean you no, know, like you're talking about rhythm is super important too yeah. with sound yeah. design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Actually what was interesting about like this, you know, him punching the guy before he says vengeance. Yeah. We did in the trailer the rhythm of that I found I uh, had to take a lot of passes at getting the rhythm right, right. and it ended up not being the actually, actual punches rhythm it's not uh-huh. quite visually in sync uh-huh. it's kind of like when we did Ratatouille yeah. we figured out we had to recut all the foley to be in time with Michael's music because otherwise it,
0: rather than in sync with the picture it didn't. Yeah. it sounded out of yeah. sync
4: yeah. and it felt out of sync it didn't feel like they were Moving with the music and dancing yeah. with the food the way that they were supposed to be visually and how we were supposed to feel about it. So, yeah, we had to recut all the foley once we put Michael's music in. like, ah, damn. Well, sink, <laughs> is. <laughs> sink is a state of mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's it. I mean, and it's not a, it, so seldom are we trying to do something that's like literally real. We want to try to do something that feels true. Yeah, it's emotional. Right? Yeah. And it's yes. not people don't go to the movies to to have you know, literal experiences. It's yeah. supposed to be abstracted and it's supposed to be something that's that's taking you somewhere, you know?
1: I think what's hard too is though there's a certain level of sound sheen that you see in today's blockbusters, right? I mean, we've we've evolved to a place where everything feels like it almost feels um like a machine, like the most beautifully well-oiled machine. And I think one of the things that is important to me is that level of subjectivity, which puts into this kind of thing that's sort of, that isn't literal, right? It puts it into an emotional space that feels like what it would feel like to be experiencing in that state. But then the other side, the more sounds that are meant to be literal, but aren't literally literal, I feel like they have to have and we always talk about this and go, God, is that that sounds too much like that punch is too loud for that, or like you know, and so how do we do that in such a way that it can feel dirty and messy enough? It's still not literal. It still wouldn't sound like that. But the challenge of the film was to find a way to make it sound gritty so it felt more real, even though it wasn't real at all, as opposed to because a lot of times you see you come into a fight scene and those fight scene those fight sounds are really like in your face in a really particular way. And we actually, even in the mix, we realized there were certain things where it was more important to start bringing the voice of the person who was being hit out ahead of the punches because otherwise you were just seeing something that felt it didn't mean anything. It was just like you just felt like it was violence, but it wasn't that sense of hearing the reaction to the violence. And so all that stuff was, I think, one of the tricky things about this, which is why while it's not literal, there is an attempt, I would say, more than you usually get in this kind of film to make it feel more literal. And so that's a trick too. I mean, yeah. you were saying that or there authentic. were certain sounds that like are um, the sounds of the punches or the sounds of gunfire that the idea, because, you know, there's a kind of, I don't know, almost like a 70s film aesthetic. Amer- like I, I love American 70s film and like, you know, that, growing up on that kind of stuff and feeling like, oh my God, that's that that level of expression is incredibly special. And actually Andy's mm-hmm. somebody who has worked with a lot of like these heroes of mine. is incredible stuff. And the, the equipment at that point wasn't as good and there's something about the grit of that that adds something. And so Will was, I remember saying when we were when we were mixing, you say, "Well, those gunshots are a bit distorted because I felt like that gives it more. If there's more of that edge to it because they're not yeah. they're overloading and that like an
2: analog distortion. Well, the Bottle Rock is a good example though. Right. When you said it had a little distortion to it, yeah. that's what made it so good, right? Exactly because it, it gives it more Just drama, that right? crunchy kind of you can't you can't make that. Yeah, it's, it's that little well, and bit of overload. that's something that we figured so out in
4: Cloverfield too. Is that we. In order to to create the sense of scale of the monster, it, it it's it's a kind of the same idea with like the T Rex in Jurassic Park. the The sound is so big that it's overloading the microphone. Right, right, it has to be that. Right, yeah. and it's like, but you you know that from from our experience in the world, we know that like when something's really loud, it gets overloaded whatever, yeah. Right. And so when you do that artificially, it tells your brain. Yeah. There are Your lizard brain that goes, get, "That's really loud." Really yeah. Like yeah. yeah. it's still so
3: tricky because you can. Some. It's a fine line. fine Because it's it's a fine line between. Oh, something's wrong with that. Yes. Or, right. Yeah. Holy cow! That really affected. Sure. Totally. Yeah. Totally. I, I was super impressed with the fight scene when he goes to the club for the first time. Right. Oh, that was I so was really hard impressed too. With and that. Yeah. Because that was, I was a hard one to get right. Wow. To hear. To, to, first of all, that music is just going. It's uh, so loud yes. in, inside the, the club. Uh, but then to f- still be able to emotionally experience the fight yes. on a level that was that I felt was intimate yes. in such a that – was, that was very impressive. And that took that's a good. long time work. to arrive at. Because you know, yeah.
1: there, were, there were versions of it where the punches were much more forward, mm-hmm. and then we were like, that's not right mm-hmm. because you're in a club. So the, the, the weird thing is if you can hear something that's soft and it's loud – and you hear that relative to the music, it means the music's not very loud, right? Because right? You're, you're getting all it's these cues the balance, problem. it's a scale problem. So you go right. like, well, that club should be, because you wanted to feel like you were going in the bowels of that club. And so that took a long time till you find the right balance. And I have to say, when I finally came in and you guys had done the pass, where the, the level that you had that music and where everything was sitting, where. You could still hear it, because you wanted it, as you say, you want to hear the intimacy of that, but now you just feel like when he passes from that beginning part of the club and gets into the heart yes, of the club, yeah. <laughs> that's one of those things you feel in your guts. You go, like, oh, yeah. I feel like I'm in a club. Yeah. And that was something that I had wanted from the beginning, but the arriving at that was a very difficult mm-hmm. process that these guys and were the able And the crowd
4: stuff was one of the things. That was, that was last critical hour. too, that yeah. was the thing. Yeah. We and realized the rhythm of the crowd. The rhythm of the crowd. Yeah, yeah. to the music. The rah, yeah. Rah, yeah.
1: rah, 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 which you literally had to do. I literally just that, did with that, the yeah, fader. Yeah. I, I realized
4: like we had this crowd stuff, and it's like, it doesn't sound like you're at a club. And then I tried, let me try like putting some rhythm on it. And literally, I just was doing it with the fader. Yeah. And it ends up feeling like they're like cheering in time with the music. Yeah. Which is like, <laughs> it's such a simple trick, the but it totally of, worked. The
5: end of that scene, when they're talking on the, mm-hmm. on the stairs, and you... Thought that the crowd might have a release. Yes, at we the did. End. A, we made right. them, we made them enjoy that, the handshake. That was, right. that was last minute. <laughs> that was yeah. literally a, an idea you had as we were wrapping up the scene, and and it was just so funny.
4: Right, that it, it makes worked. the moment so great it, it, because it, you realize, like, of course, and there's like 200 people watching him like have this fight in this and moment. And he reaches out his hand, and, and then of course they're going to react. And
1: that's yeah. what's so great about working with these guys is that, you know, there's the way in which you can go and you do. The mission, right? Which is like, well, it's this is the scene. They come in, there's a fight, and there's some music. But then there's another thing where you realize that there's something that is implied in the picture that still is not quite there yet. And we tried a lot of things, right? There are a lot of approaches we tried wow. where, like, that thing was a very last minute thing. It was like going, well, is there a way? Because Will was showing us how he was doing the, ah, rah, rah. and then it just seemed like, okay, wait a minute. But if you're really at the club, what would those people be doing? And they're shaking hands, and you're in Gotham, so they've seen violence, and it's like okay. it's over now, and he's doing and he sh- this crazy guy is shaking hands with the penguin, like, so we thought they would enjoy it. But that was not. It wasn't shot that way. It wasn't scripted that way. I mean, I'm always open to discovering something new. And so we just thought, well, what if we did that? And it took a while it was, it to land it. It took a while then. to land it, but yeah. it became
2: just another good night out at Gotham. Yeah, yeah. Exactly.
6: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Guys, uh, I could spend all day long uh, opening up these scenes and talking with you about them, but unfortunately we're coming to an end. But I do have a couple of questions about, you were talking about, Essentially what you're talking about is about how you use technology to elicit emotion. So I wanted to ask you about Dolby Atmos because there's some really interesting, not just, not just the huge moments that you would anticipate, but the way you use rain. And it's all about creating this sense of tone and foreboding in Gotham City. Can, so can you talk a little bit about Atmos and how you guys used that technology?
4: Well, first of all, I wish we would have had it when we did Cloverfield. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. really, I mean, yeah. you know, that well, was
1: it war that we started with it? It was dawn. It was dawn. Yeah, okay, because I remember the first time, and you guys were describing what it was going to be, and then when we started mixing in it, and ever since we've had that experience, I've like, said mixing in Atmos is just one of the greatest. It's, it's great. incredible. What did Sorry. you
0: What did you feel like it unlocked for you as a filmmaker?
1: Well, like I said, for me, the idea of perspective is critical to everything. Right, you're trying to create this sense of subjectivity, and so the the way in which in really precise ways, these guys can take the sound and put it in a certain space around you, and create a feeling. I mean, as toward what you were saying, and again, I want you to to answer this, but but just in, in, like little intimate things. I remember there was a thing like even just the quiet scene where Bruce is waiting as Alfred is waking up, and you guys built this rain that was just the sound of the rain around us, and it was felt as kind of sad as the scene felt. It was something so intimate. And the way that you guys used, the way you were able to use the detail of Atmos. And then I have to say, then we came into this room when I finally saw, because we, you're sitting there, we're mixing for for months, right? Or uh, how long Uh, do we mix? Weeks. Weeks, not months. uh, (laughs) The whole thing is a blur to me, but we're mixing for a long time. And you hear it in that room, and it sounds amazing, right? You're going through that process again and again. Was this – I'm
0: sorry to interrupt. This, this was at your room at No, was at uh, Burbank. Well, uh, you were at, yeah, well, this you're this at is Warner, Warner Brothers at Burbank. Boops, yeah. Yeah. Stage okay. nine. So
1: we're in that space on stage nine, and you hear it at the end. We listen at the end, and you're going like, okay. By then, you feel like you've listened to it a lot of times. And, you're, you know, the thing that I find as a filmmaker you always have to do is – and I happen to love repetition. It's a, it's a good thing that I enjoy things again and again and again. But we listened to this thing four million times. But what was so interesting was taking, we had to come here to look at the movie in Dolby Vision. And so when I came here, I would say like two weeks later, because I knew that we had done a, a really good mix, that these guys had done something incredible. But when I came and I watched in this room, I was like, oh my God, that mix is insane. It's truly Astonishing, and, and and the Atmos is a huge part of that as well. The way you guys mixed in Atmos, it blows me away. Anyway,
3: but say what you were well, going say. to say. The great thing about Atmos for me, it takes what is normally sort of a boxing ring yeah. where everyone is fighting for their space, you know, and it, it expands that, and it gives yeah. room for everyone to do what you need to do. So you don't always have to that pull back sound effects as much as you normally would or pull back music as much to make room for, because you can put these things in places where everything can live together, yeah, in harmony. Yeah, which I is, mean, like the chase scene a great example
4: yeah. of that. Like, you know, which he, the, the motorcycle chase scene, well, no, or, or, or no, the, the Batmobile the big, chase scene, the big chase scene. Yeah. The big, the big chase scene. Um, you know, there's moments in that where you're you're strafing by these semi trucks, and they're in the foreground, and the cars in the background. You know, kind of see it going under the t- the tires, and that's the kind of thing where I can take those. I can take the semis; they're like in the you know, foreground, and I can make them run through the middle of the room yeah. while the music and the Batmobile are still on the front of the screen, yep. right? And so you can create this sort of diorama of sound. And, you know, obviously you can still do that in 5.1, but being able to do it in multiple planes, yeah. it there really a does add That makes makes a sequence, really, yeah.
5: the atmos pays off so importantly in that sequence, especially mm-hmm. as it, things get more and more complicated yeah. as we approach the ending. And the giant crash, yeah. uh, there the, all the details of the pallets falling off the truck, and you know everything mm-hmm. that is happening, it's so complicated and so hard to understand what's happening, that the sound being precisely placed, right, which yeah. you can do with Atmos in a way that you can't otherwise, uh, really helped.
4: Clarify. Yeah, just even the geography. Yeah, exactly. Like, where I mean, is something? And, and if
5: that's help, if you're getting that help, it makes it so much easier to enjoy the the scene. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, if you hear a lot of stuff going on, and you can't quite figure out what's happening. It's kind of like not hearing a line of dialogue clearly. Right. You know, it kind of takes you out of the movie. Yeah. Even for
1: intimate scenes, like, you know, the remember the thing we were doing where, because I remember. The, there's, it's just you wouldn't think of this as being like this is a special sound moment, but actually was really important. Which is that when Selena and Batman are fighting in the Mayor's Mansion, and then suddenly he grabs her and he's holding her. We had this whole thing going like so wait a minute this guy shows up and he doesn't know they're there and how does that work and then we were like we, we went through a million different versions but it finally came down to this idea of opening a door yes. and hearing the guy come in and placing that in a particular placing place right, off screen. right? That yeah, was, that absolutely. was critical yeah. and it sold yeah. the whole moment
2: well the right. at dolby atmos i mean it works phenomenally for loud stuff obviously but it works really well for quiet yeah because suddenly, you can really get yeah. the detail of where the geography is. Yeah. And for me, musically, what I, what I always try and do is I pull it wider than the screen. When, whenever I'm mixing music in Dolby Atmos, I always go a little wider. It becomes The sound becomes more like CinemaScope, because I actually use the out, outer speakers that are on, in the corners of the room. I actually do a triangle with that sound and take the screen speaker off into that corner. And you don't really notice it. It's quite subtle, but it it sort of opens up the screen and suddenly it allows a lot more space for sound effects particularly. But but it immerses you literally in the music because it becomes around you, not so much to the back, but definitely to the sides and the front in a way that no other sound system can do.
0: Michael, how are you delivering your tracks to the stage to enable this kind of separation and Atmos? Are, are you giving because a lot I of.
3: I like a joke, like in a plastic bag. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yes. Well, you know, at that point, well, I don't know, actually. I mean, because I know everything is in. Because of the way we did this project, normally I would have everyone in the room at the same time record the orchestra that way, because I like the sound that that you get from that. But because of COVID, we had to record everyone separately. And what started out as sort of something that I was very disappointed by ended up being something that actually helped us quite a bit uh, in the end, having the ability to go in with all the different separate stems. so. So, but
2: if I can interrupt, yes, there please. was a hybrid though yes. that you created at Abbey Road, which was to use the two simultaneous rooms. Yes, so they recorded the orchestra in two rooms, but at the same time. Yeah, which was kind of unique. Which is great.
3: That way, they can still hear each other. They can play against each so other. You did because get to performance me, performance that way. Yes, and that was really what was the disappointing part for me. Thinking that oh, I'm not going to get that performance that we normally get everyone together. But when we figured out a way to put, you know, half the people in this side of the studio, half the people in this other room over there, and then booths spread out wherever, and there's cables running down all the hallways of Abbey Road, which is like insanity. It's Pink Floyd all over again. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's so crazy. But it's it was wonderful because the musicians could hear each other. You know, and that's really what it's all about, being able to hear each other and, and play off each other as opposed to, playing against some like a lot of times when people do this they'll just okay i'm going to go and have a brass section they have a They record the brass the brass doesn't know what the strings are doing nobody exactly. knows what anyone's yeah and it creates this again Factum. if you're looking for truth you're not going to find it in one of those recordings and this we were able to retain that so I was, so
2: you had the ability you had the advantage of the orchestra playing together yeah but i had the advantage of having the separation
3: and he could place it wherever and do whatever yeah. he wanted and i never Whenever he's involved, I never worry about a thing. That's why I, I don't even have to think about it because I know it's in good hands, you know. Thank you. And he's like mm-hmm. the master, so I'm no, the best. No, no, no. Yeah, I always feel fantastic. like anything I would say would be just ruin it. It's funny.
4: Before Michael showed up, we were talking about you know what the mix process is like, and one of the things I said about Michael was. You, you always show up with your notes are very rarely actually mostly about music. Yeah. Usually That's true. Sometimes They're... like shut
3: up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of my notes are usually story notes or <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. take the music
0: out there. Sure. Right. Right.
3: Right. Get, right.
4: And Matt goes, it, nah. Yeah, I you know. <laughs> you know don't be like, no, not, I think I'm we
6: need
0: like, it. Like, yeah. Michael, <laughs> it's really
1: good what you did there. <laughs>
0: well, I love, I love how you talked about uh, Atmos as a diorama. I th- I've one of my favorite, at most moments in this mix, which is maybe not one that a lot of people would think about was that that amazing shot when Batman reaches into the cage with the bat who's going crazy to pull that note off of, and the, what you're doing with that bat and sort of the you know the sidewall speakers—it's
3: yeah. insanity. It like drove me crazy Not, yeah. in a good way. Well, that yeah, yeah.
4: that
0: was one of those. It was
4: almost like uh, I wouldn't call it an accent exactly, but it was definitely the product of working late at night. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was one of those things, you know, th- those visual effect shots came in a bit late, and so I stayed late one night after we had been mixing all day, and you know, was putting that together with you know the latest shots, uh, the latest visual effect shots and i and i just got this idea It's like what if i put all those bat sounds in in some objects and just like literally just flew them around the room like what would that feel like and i had the same reaction michael did it was like ooh that's creepy yeah like i great. really i feel even weirder about this moment now yep. and i think that's what we're trying to do yeah
5: so for sure I played I it it he was like great cuz the is just... inside the cage yeah. right yeah yes. yes, exactly. so his You're hand is it. coming in and the bat is going away from his hand yeah into the audience yes yeah, exactly. but I
3: just want to also add in that this is not a sound related comment but the visual effects on the on the animation everything on that bat oh yeah unbelievable yeah, yeah. Like, what a- the greatest yeah know what is yeah. it it's amazing. unbelievable yeah. so yeah, yeah that's really good <laughs>
0: all right I uh, I'm gonna put all of you on the spot I, I would love <laughs> tell me if you can only pick one a favorite sound music moment. From the film. Oh,
3: for me, that's easy. It's the Batmobile starting up. <laughs> the, that would be my favorite moment in the whole thing. Just that—that whine is like the greatest <laughs> it's really thing in the world. I love it so much. That's great. Thank you.
2: Well, I love Catwoman going into the club, and mm. uh, and Batman communicating through the sequence of the oh, club. the whole POV oh, yeah. sequence, which yeah. was yeah. also love a really hard. Things to like really that too. Yeah, yeah sure. you guys. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was tough. What was particularly hard about that sequence? Again, uh, d- just following following all the narrative, but but seeing everything from her perspective and then cutting back to to, to Batman watching and uh, conveying information back and forth. It was just something really fantastic about that sequence. It's, you know what it was a, tough about fun it sequence.
1: was that when we were... So I had written it like you only see it through these particular... You either see it on his computer or you're following her. Like we're not... There's very little stuff that's like objective. We didn't shoot the scene that way. And one of the things that was difficult about it was to arrive at how to make that still feel like we were not... There's a way in which you could do that and treat it the way that maybe you would do it traditionally, where because you're watching it through the screen, the sound would push you away, which would be probably more literal and wrong emotionally because the idea was you were supposed to feel like... My concept for that scene was, I want him to experience this through her eyes. I want him to see what it's like to be objectified, to be stared at, to to have these guys leering at her, and just the idea of feeling what it is to be in that place. But if you were to treat it literally, every time you cut to that screen, the sound would have gotten small. And so the initial pass, there was a version that was a little bit like that, and I was like, guys, what can we do so that it becomes immersive? And actually, the way in which you took the sound and put it in places you never would have done with the dialogue and that kind of stuff, so that when he's talking to her, he's like God in the room talking to her, so she's in the room, but she's hearing him all around her and like so that was a very subjective but that was one of those things where of the yeah. course of the thing it kept evolving to give point us an immersive yeah
5: keeping the point of view shifting but the energy and that the you're always
0: present so you wouldn't feel removed yes yeah, ever. exactly yeah. yeah nicely done
4: I mean my, I think my personal favorite sonic moment in the movie is actually the score and just the whole way the whole thing is built but particularly the score when he arrives to the funeral scene mm. um, you know there's something about the way it looks with the look on his face and, you
0: mean when he's driving up yeah and, when he's driving and he up and then when he gets well, out that never, is so
4: emotional it's such a moment Yeah, that, and I, mm.
1: that piece of music is just I
0: know I, I kept
4: it's I,
1: ridiculous I
0: kept asking
4: <laughs> Matt if I could turn the sound effects down more there because I like the music so much <laughs> yeah. he's like no it's important they need to be yelling at him You know? oh yeah but, because because yeah. I
1: thought that was part of the sadness right, you know, you right which right. is Very that much. He he actually has a burden in being Bruce Wayne which is he co that he can't even go out he's you know this is a guy who can never go anywhere without going like Bruce Wayne. Right. And so that music which has got such melancholy in it. Yeah. And then hearing those guys go Bruce Wayne like it but, was that combination. But then we go
5: into the And really then we go into wide. his head. Yeah. 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 And the and the sound effects go away. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. And then
0: he snaps back.
5: Yeah.
1: I mean that almost all sound goes away almost. Yeah. Almost. Yes. Yeah. I
0: think it's just adorable, Will, that you picked a music moment <laughs> and Michael you
1: picked the sound,
0: sound moment. I, I
3: love and respect everything these guys do so much. Like I'm not, I'm I'm a film nerd beyond, like I'm I, I'm just a film geek before I am a musician. I think, yeah. and I I just love every aspect of filmmaking. So to be able to be involved at this level and see people who are as good as everyone here at this table is do their thing, like to me, that's the greatest gift ever. Well that like, sad. That always said. That. Always thankful then. for
1: it. <laughs> for the music, I mean, look, there's so many music moments that are ridiculously great. But the one that always gets me, and in fact, when we played, when the music played again, when we played the, the mix back, I had a moment because it took, like I said, five years to make the movie. And it was a rough period because of the pandemic. And we just went through a lot. And when we listened to, there's the piece of music that Michael wrote for when Batman pulls that flare. Mm -hmm. And when he reaches for the boy Mm -hmm. is the most profoundly beautiful piece of music that I've ever heard from you. And I always cry whenever you play me any of the music that you play that's in that tone. But that particular one really got me. And when it played, it's reprised again in the end titles. And when it suddenly hit me, this coming to end and the tone of that music, I literally had to leave the stage. I was sobbing. I couldn't stop. I just think that music is so stunning and so beautiful. So that's my music moment of which there are so many great ones in the movie. And then I would say that there's a moment of of just pure sound. We've already mentioned ones that I love, so it's kind of like, okay, I get to just pull another one in. But I love what you guys did with the sound, where when he, after the bomb goes off and he goes into the subjective state, and then he gets, I mean, that's another Atmos moment for sure, where you start hearing the ringing in his head, but then the sound goes into this kind of like sub, and you start submerging into his subconscious. And the drama of the scene is hey they could pull that mask off his face at any moment cuz he's vulnerable and yet he's not quite oh, he's not quite present enough to be able to do anything about it so that music i mean the sound at that moment creates that sense of like it's just out of reach you're in danger and there's something about the way you guys did that that okay. just yeah. blew me away
5: that yeah. is a great Wonderful. moment yeah
0: douglas bring it so, home
5: so all right well for me i have to say i love the first sequence you know, with the Ave Maria and the boy soprano and the Riddler looking through his binoculars, we're only seeing the, the whole thing through his point of view. And we hear his breathing, which, uh, which is really creepy. And in contrast to the music, which is so beautiful and classic, it's just, a, and, and we're trying to figure out what is going on here. It's so strange. It's such a weird, uncanny way to start a movie. Yeah. And, it, and it leads into that whole first sequence that we were talking about, which is so, uh, 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 you know, unlike, I think, any sequence of any sort of blockbuster movie you've ever seen. Uh, uh, anyway, that, I think it kicks off the movie and. In a remarkably and the
0: sound treatment for the Riddler, unbelievable. way, unbelievable. Yeah. I, did that take a lot of experimentation to kind of a settle
5: of into that's that?
4: Paul, really? Oh, yeah, I mean,
5: obviously no, yeah. no, It is. Voice. It's Paul. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we did the least amount of touching to his voice. All
1: we were like at the beginning, like when Stuart had a thing. We had this sound. Uh, Box that could pitch his voice down, which then you bought. And okay. I, I know that you, I know you have probably bits of that never, in your own thing. You didn't, you, you, but the, but the thing yeah. about it was that he needed to understand his effect. He needed to hear what it sounded like. So there was a day in prep where he said, "I want. I'm just going to do this thing, and I'm going to put on the mask, and I'm going to talk to you, and I'm going to read the lines." So Paul Dano is talking to me in this voice. In my head, it was that feeling. It actually feels like the way you guys mixed it and designed it where it's like, you're right here. And he's talking to me and I was like, this is the craziest thing ever. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely that that simple effect. It was always written as if he was, you know how like you have like a voice disguiser if you're gonna do like like, an interview on 60 Minutes, right? So it was always supposed to be that kind of thing. Like he's kind of trying to disguise his voice. Just so that when people hear him, they don't know who he is. So that that was the level of what it was supposed to be, which is kind of a simple, kind of crude effect. And Paul's manipulation of that was like a musician, like an art, like an artist. Yeah. Well, well, and he was reacting
3: to it for that yeah. is when he's then talking to his followers. His, followers. his followers, he's yeah. like, "Hey guys, you're hey just like, <laughs> whoa, yeah, <laughs> <Everyone's just> like, <laughs> yeah." yeah, yeah. It, and yeah. a big like, part great.
5: of his sound is the mic is inside the mouth. Right. Yes, right. 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 So yeah. when you he, because. Uh, you get all that spit and mm-hmm. breathy, and it over- yeah. overloads over- a little bit. And, sounds, and, yeah, yeah. Right. It's cool. and that so breath
1: sound it makes, where he goes like, oh! yeah. he does this crazy yeah. sound with his with his. So breath. Silent scream.
5: <laughs> oh, that was
1: exactly it. Yeah, yeah. he said to us because when we were doing the, the the post and we were getting more stuff, he was saying like, I don't know if any if you used any of it, but I was I just always thought that the reason you know when I went, ah, it's because he felt that he had been so. Um, invisible his whole life and that he was basically so alone that his scream was a silent scream that he was alone no one wow. could hear
3: him a,
1: so uh, the sound <laughs> he's making that, that really unsettling sound which was in that teaser trailer yeah. when he pulls the tape and does all that yeah. like, ah, is actually the sound of the unheard pain of the Riddler that's, that's great yeah. I think both. that's a good I think yeah. that's a good way to wrap, <laughs> wrap it up yeah, that's
0: perfect there <laughs> it is gentlemen <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with us about this it's a uh, I I love this movie. Oh, it's really you. a remarkable achievement. That's great. Congratulations. That's, we thank love you. it too. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it. yeah, we do. <laughs> thanks once again to Matt, Michael, Will, Douglas, and Andy for joining me uh, today. An extra special thanks to our friends at Warner Brothers for helping put this conversation together for us. It was no easy task getting everyone together in one place to sit down and talk about their work in person for well over an hour, and we really appreciate it. Uh, everyone at Warner Brothers who helped us put this together. You can find links to buy tickets to Batman in our show notes, which you can find in a Dolby Cinema near you. And believe me when I tell you that watching this film in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos is definitely the way to go. If you enjoyed this conversation, good news. As I mentioned up top, this is the first of two conversations focused on the Batman. Up next, we sit down once again with Matt Reeves uh, and his creative team to discuss the visual approach to this movie which looks just stunning and once again it's a super fun and eye-opening conversation that you won't want to miss so be sure you are subscribed to us the dolby institute podcast we will also have more of our academy awards coverage coming up soon as well you can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in our show notes or you can just search for dolby wherever you get your podcasts until then thanks again for joining us this is sound and image lab brought to you by the dolby institute I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser, our producer and editor is Michael Coleman, our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines, and our production coordinator is Sunny Chen. Thank you for listening.